Good morning. I'm so excited to start something new. And I can also feel a little bit of uh, butterflies in my stomach. I don't know what that's, where that's coming from, but there it is, right? Um, because it's, it's always an interesting thing to start something new and, and kind of leap into the unknown. And uh, the future is always uncertain, as they say. But I'm really, I'm really happy to be starting these uh, Sunday morning sessions, which will be uh, once a month. Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't say it's the first Sunday or the second Sunday or the third Sunday of the month because our schedule shifts and changes from month to month. But we're going to try to make them um, uh, a regular feature at New York Insight. So thank you all for coming. I'm so thrilled that you're all here. I thought we could start um, with uh, a bit of chanting. So I'd like to chant the homage to the Buddha and the uh, refuges and the precepts to begin. So how many of you know those chants? So just a few. So why don't I do call and response? And on on the on the refuges, we do them three times. Uh, on the all of them, everything except for the, um, the the precepts, we do three times. So I'll do it the first time, and you can join on this on the second and third for the homage and the refuges. And then the precepts we will just do um, call and response. And after we do the Pali, I'll also do the English translation. And you can follow in speech with the English translation. You'll get it as we go along. So first we start with the homage to the Buddha. Namo tassa. Bhagavato. Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Homage to the Blessed, Noble, and Perfectly Enlightened One. So the, that's the homage to the Buddha, and the refuges are basically going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha being our, the, the, the historical Buddha, as well as the, uh, the potential for our own awakening, for our own enlightenment, for our own Buddha nature to emerge. Homage to the Dharma is homage, I'm sorry, going for refuge to the Dharma is going for refuge 
to the way things are, as well as to the teachings that lead us to the clarity and the understanding of the way things are. So Dharma with a large D is with, with a big D, with a capital D is the, uh, the teachings, and with a small D is the way things are, the way things naturally unfold. And then homage to the Sangha, the community of beings here, as well as the community of beings that have gone all the way back to the time of the Buddha who have been practicing these beautiful teachings. So we take refuge in the Buddha, our own, the, our own ability to awaken to the Dharma, the way things are, and to the Sangha, the community of beings here, as well as the historical community. So just to reflect on that for a moment. <laughs> Buddham Saramanga Chami Dhamman Saranga Chami Sangan Saranga Chami and then duty MP means for the second time. Duty MP. Buddham Sarananga Chami. Duty MP. Buddham Sarananga Chami. Dhamman Sarananga Chami. Duty MP Sangam Sarananga Chami. And then Tati MP means for the third time. Tati MP. Buddham Sarananga Chami. Tati MP. Dhamman Sarananga Chami. Tatiampi Sangam Sarananga Chami And then we take the five precepts, which essentially are the training, the five training rules for uh, living an ethical life, for living a life of integrity, one that is harmless, one that does not. Um, uh, harm of oneself or other beings, which allows us to give the gift of fearlessness to ourselves, to our community, and to every being that we need. So those um, those five are uh, the we undertake the precept to abstain from taking life. We undertake the precept to abstain from taking what is not given. We undertake the training of refraining from sexual misconduct. We undertake the training to abstain from false or harmful speech. And we undertake the training to refrain from uh, using alcohol and uh, intoxicating alcohol and drugs that cause heedlessness. So we'll do that as call and response. Panati Pata, Panati Pata, Where Ramani, 
Sigapadam Samadhyami And we can un- we undertake the precept to refrain from taking, uh, from, from harming life. So you can say that in English. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking life. Second, Adina Danao Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. Kamesu Michachara Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual con- misconduct. Musa Wada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. Sura Merya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicating alcohol and drugs that cause heedlessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicating drugs and alcohol that cause heedlessness. So it's always a wonderful way to start a practice, to remind ourselves of our intention to live a life of harmlessness to the extent that we can. We're human beings and so we're constantly impinging on ourselves and on each other. However, to uh, constantly confirm, I'm sorry. So what I was saying is that it's always helpful to, uh, when we sit, to remind ourselves of our intention to live a blameless life. And of course, we know that it's a practice, because it, it, and practice implies that we're not perfect, and that we we have a way to go before we even remotely become perfect. And yet, to have the intention to practice, uh, not so much for so that we become great meditators, but that we become great human beings. So, um, and we are already great human beings. And so our practice is really for the purpose of allowing that greatness to emerge. And when I say greatness, what I mean is to live a life that really um, establishes kindness and wisdom and compassion, which of course the world can always use more of. So thank you for, um, for joining me in, in those 
intention to go for refuge to the three jewels of, of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and to, uh, to take the training precepts of trying to live a life of blamelessness and of um, harmlessness. So I'd like to, uh, rather than talk about meditation and why and all of that, which we'll get into with the talk, I'd like to just go right into uh, the instructions for meditation. So since we have a few beginners, I'll give a little bit more detailed instruction than usual. So after having established our intention, which we did through the chanting of the, the homage and the refuges and the precepts, it's helpful to simply allow your attention to come to the body sitting here in this moment. Whether you're sitting on a chair or a cushion or a bench or lying down because we have a couple of people who need to lie down. Just notice what it feels like for the body to have arrived here and allow every molecule of the body to be here. And when I say bring the attention to the body, I mean not having a concept about the body or some idea about the body, but actually knowing that there is a body sitting here and understanding through experience, not through the mind, but through the actual experience of body, how it is to be in a body. And how do we know that? How do we know we have a body? Because there are sensations that, that appear. They're appearing and disappearing all the time. Because as the body is impinged by the air, in which, it sit, in which it moves and, and shapes, <coughs> impinged by the, uh, by the conditions, physical conditions, heat or cool or cold, by the contact that it has with other phenomena, the contact of the buttocks with the seat creates pressure, we feel it. Perhaps there are internal sensations and external sensations. So the body can be known not through a concept, but through actual physical experience. So I'll give you a couple of moments to, to notice that. So the seat is hard or soft, which is earth element. You notice pressure as the buttocks meets the seat, that's air element. You notice heat or cold, that's fire element. 
You may also notice tingling in the hands and the feet and parts of the body that's also air element. And you notice the fluidity or the cohesion or perhaps the not-so-fluidity of the body, which is water element, and the way things are held together. That's water element. So just sitting here, we can notice our, ex where our experience of elements, even though we may not always be conscious of that or, be, or, or see it that way. We are experiencing it constantly. And we can adjust our posture because in the adjustment of the posture, we set the template for how the meditation will be. And there are two principles of relaxation and alertness. So for alertness, we allow the, the posture of the body to be dignified and noble. And the way we do that is we allow the spine to be erect. So that there is a central template of an erect and alert and aware body. And yet when I say that, you may have noticed that there was a tightening in the body, that in pulling up the spine and making it erect, you may have made it a little bit too tight or tense. And so we relax it while keeping that alertness and, and that dignity to the posture by allowing the, the shoulders to relax and the muscles of the face the eyes, the brows, the cheeks, the jaw, the teeth, and even the scalp around the cranium to relax. If you're sitting on a chair, it might be helpful to not lean back into the chair because that tends to bring the energy down. So that even though that may feel relaxed, it may, be, it may affect one's alertness, one's energy. So we're constantly finding the balance, the middle, between alertness and relaxation. And there's a kind of dignity in that balance, a kind of nobility in that balance. And even though we may set that balance, in the beginning, during the meditation period, you may notice that because of the habits that have been established in the body, it may revert to tension or it may revert to a kind of low energy. And so we'll, we're aware of that and we adjust without much commentary or analysis, just noticing what the energy and the alertness is like are like and we, we keep adjusting so that the balance is always there. Balance is like that. It's not a static thing. The, if we allow the crown of the head to be the highest point in the body, by tucking the chin slightly, we release the back of the neck so that it's not tight and it doesn't become tired 
or tense. Notice how your eyes are closed if they're closed and you can either leave them open or closed. If they're closed, don't close them tight shut, but just allow the upper lid to relax, to close very, in a very relaxed way on the lower lid. If you leave the eyes open, just notice, just allow a small slit to allow light to enter into the body through the eyes, but leave your gaze about four feet in front of you, um, steady, and not looking around. Because this, this practice of meditation is a practice of going in. So we don't want to be out into the environment so much, but allow a kind of collecting of the energy, a gathering of our energy, and allowing our attention to move into uh, a, an internal space. So notice now what the body feels like in this dignified and alert yet relaxed posture. And you may notice that the energy of the mind may be somewhat scattered. So just as we are collecting the energy of the body and directing it in a particular way of relaxation and alertness, we can gather the energy of the mind and point it towards one object. So it's as if we establish uh, awareness, mindfulness, attention, on one object and in this in our tradition we use the breath mostly as that one object so see if you can without altering your breath without uh, trying to make anything happen with the breath simply notice where the breath is most easily noticed or found in your own body perhaps it's at the belly that rises and falls Perhaps it's at the chest that rises and falls. Or perhaps it's at the nostrils where the air enters and leaves right at the tip of the upper lip. So just notice that for, for a moment. And where is it most prominent for you? Wherever it is, whether at the chest, the belly, or the nostrils, allow the attention to quite naturally rest there. You're, you naturally breathe for all of your life. You know what happens if we stop breathing. And we, we direct our attention throughout our whole lives, so it's, it's not a big deal that we're asking now in meditation that the attention be directed to this object. It's not a big project, it's nothing huge that needs to be done, it's a very small movement 
of simply knowing where the attention is and allowing it to rest, to come to rest on this movement of breath in the body. So we're not making a project out of it, we're just noticing what it's like for the body to breathe, what sensations are felt, what is noticed. And again, not a big deal in terms of conceptual thinking, but simply uh, directing the attention to experience, the experience of breath, of breathing. this process of gathering all of our attention and allowing it to rest on this movement of breath in the body, other phenomena may arise, quite natural, that sounds are heard, sensations are felt in the body, thoughts appear and disappear if we allow them to, there may be smells, there may be even tastes in the, on the tongue or uh, sensations as, as we sit uh, in, the, in the air. So all of these are natural phenomena that are arising as a, as a natural course of being alive. And perhaps any of these can pull the attention away from the movement of, of the breathing. If that happens, it's not a problem, it's not a failure. We simply notice, oh, hearing, or thinking, or seeing, or smelling, or tasting, or touching. And we allow that thinking, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, any of those sense uh, experiences to have their natural journey. They arise, they may stay for a while, and then they pass away. And we are here in the midst of that, without any commentary, any judgment, any analysis, what we call uh, non-judgmental awareness of what is happening. And we simply allow our attention on the breath to become the organizing principle of how we sit in this meditative uh, endeavor. So when those thoughts, ideas, uh, images, sounds, smells, etc. come and go, we return our attention to the breath. And this is a natural dance. It's not a kind of jerking of the attention but a kind of natural dance of things arising and passing away and the attention being returned to the breath.
So we're going to take a, a short, um, silent break in a moment. But uh, are there any questions about the practice itself? And I'd like to invite the people who are beginners, especially if you have questions, to feel free to ask them. Sometimes we think that they're kind of too simple, but they're never too simple or too basic. So are there any questions about the sitting practice? Yes, please. It, it seems as though it's easier to meditate in a group, and I was wondering if, uh, if that's true, why? It's easier to meditate in a group, and why is that? <laughs> I think it's because we feel the support, and it's a little harder to get up in the middle of it if there are a whole bunch of people. <laughs> it's the wonderful thing about Sangha. Yes, please. I get lots of thoughts that come when I go back to my breath. I have a hard time finding my breath. I'm like, oh, that's how I breathe? I thought it would be deeper or smoother or easier to identify, and then I get distracted by that and feel out of breath. Uh huh. So is it funny when we pay attention to something, we suddenly want to control it, right? Yes. So that's an insight. Already you've had an insight, an insight meditation. <laughs> so yeah, um, we you know we tend to want to control everything, even our breath. And we've been breathing for however many years we've been alive, right? I, I think I can safely say that. Um, so to notice that, and the 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 instructions are really quite simple, and they you know they seem so simple, and we think, oh my God, you know they're so simple. Why can't I follow them? But actually, they're simple to hear, but they're not that easy to do. And that's why we call it practice, because you're, you're actually learning a new way of being with phenomena. The breath is just a, a, a symbol, really, uh, for all of the ways in which we relate to life. So we learn a lot just by being still and being silent and paying attention to an object. The breath is, you know, it's not, it's not anything really special. What's good about it is it's portable, right? So we can always be mindful. We can always use the breath as a way of coming back to this present moment. And however it is, whether it's long or it's short or it's deep or it's shallow or it's rough or it's smooth, we simply notice that. And because we're training the mind to see things just as they are without interference at least in our practice of meditation. Eventually, we're taking that practice out where we can relate to life in a way from a, from a place of stillness and calm and learn how to appropriately, appropriately respond to what is happening in life because we've learned how to actually see it uh, clearly through the meditation. So it's it's a it's a really small um, act. Meditation is is really quite small. It's not huge. It's just paying attention, paying attention to what is true, and that means that we're not only paying attention to the breath, but we're paying attention to how we're relating to the breath, because eventually in life we want to learn how to see how the way we relate to our experience causes more suffering or less suffering, 
that's where we're going with meditation, right? So, so to not be disheartened because you have particular reactions or abilities or inability or, or be proud because you have certain abilities or be not proud because you have certain inabilities, it, that's not really the point. The point is how are we seeing things? Are we seeing things for what they are? And how are we responding to that? Are we responding to that, wanting them to be a particular way? So the breath is, lo is short, so we want it to be long. It's shallow, so we want it to be deep. It's rough, so we want it to be smooth. To notice that, what's that about? What, what, what is it about life that makes us want to dictate how it should be? And then we learn how the breath, for instance, as, a, as an object, is something that's not under our control. And how many things in life are not under, under our control, but we have the delusion that we can control things, that we can make them turn out how we want them to, that we can make them appear the way we want them to. So just that small um, willingness to be here for this one breath, just one, can show us so much about how we are being in life. And so to notice when you, know, when, when you want the breath to be some other way, are you agitated or are you calm? Just to notice that, and to not put a value judgment on, oh, I wasn't calm, so there's something wrong. But just, oh, look at how, when I want something to happen a particular way and it's not, how the agitation comes. That's valuable information. And you're feeding that by, the, by your observation, the, where you're not allowing judgment or analysis or commentary to come into it. Just allowing that kind of bare attention to what's happening in this moment allows, gives the mind that information and it uses it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to make the mind make you do something. You simply observe it, you know it, you see it, and you pay attention to what's coming next, right? What's here now. And the, the mind seeing that can incorporate that into how we move forward. Sorry, my throat's extremely dry this morning, so this helps. Um, my question is actually sort of developed in response to some of the comments you just made um, to the woman who was asking about noticing the breath, because um, in my practice lately, one of the things, you know, I've been trying to focus on just allowing my body to be. Um, not something I'm <laughs> very good at, but... Um, I've noticed as I'm becoming aware of the body, I'm much more aware of noticing where areas of tension are or where things don't feel, they just don't feel free. And so rather than trying to tell myself what I want my breath to be or what I want my posture to be or what have you, I'm just trying to, as I become aware of it, just letting my body kind of naturally move and settle into things. and I. As I do that, I notice that my breath does become much more conducive to being calm and still. But it doesn't seem like it's an act of volition that I'm saying, okay, breathe deep, but breathe into here. And I'm just wondering, you know, is, is there a difference? Or I'm just not sure what to make of it. Is there a difference between what? Um, between, like, having an act of intention or volition where you're saying, okay, breathe deep, breathe slow, you know, breathe out fully from the bottom of the lungs, or just saying 
you know, just listening to my body saying, you know, let's settle in a little bit differently, and then your breath kind of changing in response to that. Is that still judging, or is that sort of the the purpose, I guess, in a certain way of, of developing that kind of um, internal what conversation? What do you think? Um, to me, it feels natural. It, it feels like that's... It's almost like a an aha moment for me of that's what it feels like it that the kind of conversation and, and inner calm that we should be uh, developing here but I don't like using words like should because it still implies yeah. judgment you know beautiful so yeah so how how it feels to you is probably more important than my kind of guessing whether or not you know what your intention is or how your intention is so what so what you beautifully just demonstrated is your inner teacher can really tell you you know you have lots of ways of knowing yourself and and the the meditation is is really that it's a study of this mind body and heart so so you know you know when you're being manipulative and controlling right and you know when you're allowing things to take a natural course and to understand their own, to have a, the body has its own wisdom, to know when it needs to relax, when it, where it's tight, where it's tense, where, it's, where it needs adjustment. And allowing that is a very different thing than saying, as you said very wisely, you know, I should be this way or I should be that way or my, you know, I should look this way so that everybody can know I'm a great meditator, right? You know, uh, I remember a, a story very early on when we were learning med uh, walking meditation, a teacher of, of mine uh, told us the story of a, of, a, of a student doing walking meditation and he was doing lifting, moving, placing, looking good, moving, <laughs> 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 placing, right? And you know, that little voice that, that either says looking good or looking terrible, you know, whatever it is. So we know that inner teacher. We know that inner teacher, and that's what we're really developing. Because an external teacher can just go so far with you. But what, what a really good external teacher is doing is pointing to you where your inner teacher is and, the, and developing the wisdom of that inner teacher, which you, know, you seem to be well on your way to doing. So since it's the first day of the first time that we're meeting together on a Sunday in this format, I thought that what might be appropriate is to give the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is the, uh, the basic teachings, the most central teachings in just about every Buddhist tradition. Uh, the Buddha often said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, which is what these Four Noble Truths encompass. And they're the four basic truths of life, which is why they're called noble. And they're also called noble because once you realize them, they are ennobling. So it is understanding these truths with a wise heart that's the purpose of our practice together. There's nothing outside of it in Buddhist teachings. And any teachings that you receive, you will notice that they all come back to the four noble truths. So the story is told on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. He sat under the Bodhi tree, under the banyan tree, 
perfectly sheltered, resting in perfect equipoise, and was attacked by what are called the armies of Mara. Mara is the kind of uh, dark figure in uh, in Buddhist um, in the Buddhist teachings. I suppose all of the religious traditions have have this figure, but he's called Mara in uh, in in Buddhism. So there were but his arrows and spears are really symbols of temptation and aggression. And of course, there are beautiful stories about this, uh, this confrontation between the Buddha and Mara on the night of his enlightenment. And perhaps from time to time, you'll see images uh, drawn where the Buddha is touching these spears and arrows with the fingertips, with his fingertips, in a line drawn to his heart. And this, is, this signifies the heart of compassion the way of looking at our difficulties of all of the temptations and aggressions of being human and um, touching them with the heart of compassion. And what you'll notice in those pictures is that uh, as, he, as he touches these spears and arrows, they turn into flowers. They turn into the petals of, of flowers and those flowers fall at his feet. And this is an important image that we can hold that we can touch each arrow and spare with our hearts, and that that compassion holds the difficulties of life. So he sat there facing all of the difficulties of Mara. And of course, we know Mara doesn't live in just in Bodhgaya, but he lives in New York, too, right? <laughs> yeah. And he, so he was touching each with his great compassion until his heart and mind became absolutely clear and so clear that he could look and see the birth and death and birth and death of himself and of all beings uh, so the story goes he said the round of beings inconceivable as the beginning of this round of birth and death of samsara not to be discovered as any first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, hurry and hasten through the rounds of birth. These are the words of the text. And in the midst of his own difficulty, he saw the way that we all, all human beings, different ways that people become entangled in life. And I'd just like to say parenthetically, that in a way that's one of the insights that we get as we meditate that these difficulties that we encounter in life are not just our own difficulties but in a way they are universal they may manifest in different ways for each of us but these this this life that has what the Taoists call ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows is what we all have in common as human beings so he saw the struggles with this and the struggles with that, and seeing all of that, he discovered a tremendous freedom possible in the midst of these difficulties of life. And he sat, it's the, the story says, with perfect peace and joy for a very long time. And then he got up after days of, uh, of this peace and joy, this tremendous peace, and he gazed at the Bodhi tree in gratitude. 
And what he saw so clearly was at the heart of this spiritual life. That if we see the world truthfully, if we see the world exactly for what it is, then freedom is possible. So there he, there he is, uh, sitting, under this, sitting under this tree with this wonderful peace and considering, how am I going to teach this peace and this freedom and this joy? And at first he had some doubts about whether this beautiful realization that he had would be teachable, whether he could really uh, communicate it so that people would understand. And there's a long story, which I won't go into, of uh, one of the gods coming to him and saying, you must teach it because there are people with little dust in their eyes. And I'm always moved by this because I think as we, as we sit together as a community, what we're really saying to each other is each of us has little dust in our eyes that can be easily, not so easily maybe, but can be removed. Right? And so the Buddha was persuaded that even though this realization that he had was subtle and profound, that it, he would be able to teach it in a way that people would understand. And they, when he gave voice to it, it was called the lion's roar. And then this lion's roar is the teaching of uh, the Four Noble Truths. So as you listen, in this place of meditation, this place where we've had 15 years of people coming, not 15 years, because we've only been here for 10, of people coming to meditate. Um, it's not that you should listen and believe so much. This is not, these are not articles of faith that we invite, but we, list, but we ask you to listen and sense for yourself in the deepest place in your own life what is true. And if you find that what you hear is, is not true for you, it's okay. You can let it go. James Audubon, in his beautiful book on the birds of North America, said, when the bird and the book disagree, always believe the bird. <laughs> so listen and sense what's true for you. So the first noble truth, dukkha, dukkha. How many people know what dukkha means? Ah, wow, not that many. Ha! <laughs> huh? Did somebody say something? So dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, uh, if you do some studies in, in, in the Buddhist text, you'll see it, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Can't hear me. Uh, so that's dukkha. Not being able to hear me, right? Is dukkha. That's a really beautiful, a beautiful example of it. How we want something and we can't have it. We can't get it because not because there's something within our control, but so many things are out of our control, and we want them, and they're they're not available to us for whatever reason. And there's an unsatisfactoriness about that. And so dukkha is anything from that kind of experience to the experience that knowing that we're going to, as we're born, whatever, whenever we take bodies on, 
that body is subject to aging, to sickness, and to death. That's just how it is. That's how it's, the whole thing is uh, designed. You know? So if you're thinking that there's perfect design, maybe we have a few suggestions for the designer, right? Because we're going to age, we're going to get sick, and we're going to die. And so that's, that's one part of the spectrum, of the wide spectrum of dukkha. Dukkha can be just waking up in the morning with all of the, you know, the uh, stiffness of the body, or feeling that we didn't get enough sleep, or having a headache, or knowing there's something that we're going to have to confront, uh, you know, with our children, or our co-workers, or our bosses, or our employees, or our friends, or our not-so-friends. That this life, as the Buddha, the Buddha expressed it, is there is dukkha. Not that life is dukkha, but there is dukkha that this exists, this unsatisfactoriness. And dukkha, the root in Pali of the word dukkha, uh, signifies um, a, a hub and a wheel, and the, uh, the, 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 the axle going into that hub, and it doesn't quite fit so well, right? And so, of course, what happens when the axle goes into the hub of the wheel, and it's not perfect, is it's a bumpy ride. Right? Life is a bumpy ride. Right? So that's what the Buddha was saying. Dukkha. It's a bumpy ride. It's unsatisfactory. And, you know, when I heard this, for me it was really kind of liberating already, just to hear this. Because in so many ways we're told, or, you know, there's a message that, you know, just suck it up and put it together. Right? You know, you know get over yourself with this suffering. You know, which is sometimes how you'll see dukkha uh, translated. Just to be with life in a way where we understand the difficulties, we understand its imperfection, we understand how there are things that we want and we can't have, that there are things that we want to keep that we lose, that there are ways in which uh, there, there are um, things that appear that we don't want to have. So there's, there's so many ways in which this dukkha, this truth of this first noble truth, that there's this unsatisfactoriness, there's this misfit of the, of the, the axle in the, in the hub, is true of life. So what it basically says is, in this world, pain is unavoidable. That pleasure and pain change daily, moment to moment, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, a moment of conditions, and then the wind blows it away. We saw that great wind yesterday. That's how life is. The winds come up and they blow away whatever is there. Security, says Helen Keller, is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. I love that. So the truth that pain is unavoidable, that change is unavoidable. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't have pain, who's never experienced pain? <laughs> I want to know you. 
And even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, one of my favorite facts about him is that here he was, this highly realized, enlightened, awakened being. And he would call his attendant, Ananda, who was his cousin, from time to time and say, Ananda, you take the Dharma talk tonight. I've got backache, right? So it's not as if the, this awakening was that we are um, investigating and thinking that we're going to be awakened and become perfect beings with not another drop of pain in our lives. Sorry. So the Buddha said, birth includes suffering, decay includes suffering, death includes suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, loss, despair, all include suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. In short, grasping the five groups of existence is suffering. And it's not just personal. It's global. And it's, it's here in America. It's there in the Sudan. It's there in all of the places that have these difficulties in, the, um, in, in, our, in, in society. Wars raging all over the world, we know that. Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, all over the world, in Africa, in the Middle East. And we even have political wars here. We have two and a half million people incarcerated more than any other country in the world. The per capita incarceration is higher than Libya, than any, other in, than any country that you can look at. So in terms of the numbers of people, the per capita, and I heard a statistic that was very disturbing last night, which is that it used to be that about 40% of the people in prison were violent. And now that number has gone down to 8%. So that we're, we're, we're figuring out so many ways that we can incarcerate people. Uh, don't know what that's about. Maybe it has to do with privatization of the prisons. So, so we look and we see that the suffering is not just a personal thing, but it's also a global thing. And of course, we spend uh, we spend so much money for weapons. People are starving. We have enough food that we could actually cover the whole world with food. And so when we sit and we feel the pain in our own lives, perhaps we begin to understand that it's not just my pain, but it's the pain. It's the pain that we all have in common. And if we see it clearly, the Buddha says, we can find freedom. So the sickness, the loss, the depression, the confusion, the anger, jealousy, competition, guilt, betrayal, and even in pleasure, there's a certain dukkha. Even in pleasure, because we, we're afraid it won't last, and so we grasp it, and we, because we want to keep it. And then, or we think we have it, and did you ever get it? And then what happens? Hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. So there's this famous poem from Basho, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. Poignant, isn't it? So we're dissatisfied and that dissatisfaction is our, our suffering. 
or even meditation. You know, so very simple instruction, right? Watch your breath. Thinking, 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 thinking. Thinking, more thinking, more thinking. Oh, the breath, yes. Thinking, 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 thinking. Right? So stop for a moment. Just feel it. Sense it. Notice, this is dukkha. I want something and I can't get it. This is dukkha. So the problem is how we live in a world, in a culture, where pain is supposed to be prettied up, gagged, ungrieved over. And the relief that we feel when we hear, oh yeah, this is it. This is how it is. So that's the first noble truth. The truth that we can't hold on. The truth that things are insecure. No matter where we look, they change. We have it for a moment and then circumstances and conditions change. So this is the truth of dukkha, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. And then the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, or the cause of dukkha, individual and worldwide, is grasping, clinging, craving, which then become the forces of greed and possessiveness of hatred and aggression, of trying to protect what we're grasping at from law. That sound familiar? So keeping it, we get angry and aggressive, right? Because we want to protect it. And then there's ignorance and delusion that somehow we think we're separate. We think that we can possess and guard and own things and be someone who actually owns stuff. And we're just renting it. We're renting our bodies, we're renting our lives, we're renting all the stuff that we have. Anybody take it with them? The, the, there's a story about a very wealthy man um, who, was, uh, who died, and the question was, you know, how much did he leave? And someone said, why everything? <laughs> so this delusion that what we cling to will make us happy and out of grasping and possessiveness and aggression and delusion come wars and racism and tribalism and us and them and most of the hunger in the world and the cruelty in the world. We do have enough medicine and food. It just doesn't get to everyone. It's diverted to someone else. And the cause of most of the human suffering right now on the earth is in our hands. And individually, our grasping at how it should be. We don't want things to change, or we do want them to change. We don't want to grow old, or we do want, don't want to lose certain things. We want them to happen in the way that we want them to, do, to happen. So when you're suffering, see where there's attachment and see where there's grasping. Study where you grasp. Study where you grasp with your children, your money, your work, your spiritual beliefs. Even when we sit here, moment to moment, each sitting, each moment we can see the grasping. The, the question, 
over here about you know wanting the breath to be a particular way that's grasping I want this to stay I don't want that to come and how it should be this is pleasant I want more of the, that this is unpleasant I don't want it to happen no the whole sense of ourselves gets created by trying to make safety and territory and it's called the small body of fear that place from which we live that is afraid to let go and to change. It's always protected. I love this uh, quote from Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan uh, Lama from the 20th century, uh, very famous Tibetan Lama. He talks about mindfulness, life, and meditation. He said, when we experience the meditative state, it is momentarily tangible. But in the same moment, it is also dissolving. Going along with this process means developing a sense of letting go of awareness as well as contacting it. The base, this basic technique could be described as touch and go. You are there, present, mindful, then you let go. A common misunderstanding is that the meditative state of mind has to be captured and then nursed and cherished. That is definitely the wrong approach. I love that. If you try to domesticate your mind through meditation, try to possess it by holding on to the meditative state, the clear result will be regression on the path with a loss of freshness and spontaneity. If you try to hold on without lapse all the time, then maintaining your awareness will begin to become a domestic hassle. <laughs> it will become like painfully going through housework. There will be an underlying sense of resentment and the practice of meditation will become confusing. You will begin to develop a love-hate relationship toward your practice in which your concept of it seems good, but at the same time the demand that this rigid concept makes on you is too painful. So the technique of mindfulness of life is based on touch and go. You focus your attention on the object of awareness, but then in the same moment, you disown the awareness and go on. What is needed here is some sense of confidence that you do not have to securely own your own mind, but that you can tune into its process spontaneously. I think that's a really beautiful example of a teaching on how not to hold on, how not to grasp, how not to crave, how not to cling. And because he's doing it through even meditative states, the way in which we grasp and cling and crave, and it causes deep suffering. So even in our meditation, we can see how that happens. So we grasp it not only at meditative states, but we, in a way, those, we look at those as sense pleasures, right? The meditative state. So we grasp its sense pleasures. We, we grasp at existence. This is who I am. This is how, who I want to be. This is how I am. We grasp at that existence. We grasp at non-existence. This is who I don't want to be. And then we try to redo things the way it's supposed to be. Someone said uh, that forgiveness is letting go of all hope of a better past. Forgiveness is letting go of all hope of a better past. We even try to redo the past 
to make it look the way we want it to look. So we grasp after that. We cling to non-existent. We want things to go away. We don't want our pain. We don't want our loneliness. We don't want our separation or our loss. We don't want to deal with it. We don't think we can deal with it. How we should dress. Capitalism, existentialism, collectivism, socialism, communism, republicanism, democratism, or whatever it is that we follow. All these things, we cling to them and they make us suffer. It's not that there's anything wrong with the things in themselves. Be very clear about that. But it's the attaching to it, the clinging to it, the making a self of it. Because the more we cling, the more we suffer. And so the Buddha said there, the, that's, that's the bad news. And the good news is, the third noble truth, it can end. That this suffering, this dukkha, is possible, and there's a possibility of freedom for every single human being. And he began to teach that the heart can be free and loving and kind in any circumstances. This is the truth. It is your birthright. It's your own wisdom, your own Buddha nature. And this liberation, this freedom, he called Nibbana. And Nibbana isn't somewhere else like Burma or Thailand or Tibet or at the end of your life. It's here in New York. It's freedom in the midst of all things. And the definition of Nibbana is very simple. It's the end of greed, of hatred, and delusion in the heart. The end of clinging and grasping. Seeing the world for what it is, pleasure and pain, light and dark, gain and loss, appearing for a time and changing without anyone being able to stop it or control it. Saying, oh, this is how it is. There's no solid self, nothing that we can say is me or mine, and I know that the minds are going as soon as I say that. Hold it, okay? My thoughts are disappearing. My feelings are changing. My body is aging. Nothing is, nothing is static, even our meditative states cannot be static, cannot be grasped and clung to. So he said not clinging inwardly and not clinging outwardly. So not even trying to see how things can, uh, things should be different on the external level. And he said in his description of Nibbana, he said for a disciple thus freed in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Just as a rock remains unshaken by the wind, even so, the forms and sounds and circumstances of life, neither the desired nor the undesired, cause the heart to waver. For one who has considered all the contrasts on this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatsoever will become peaceful, free from sorrow and fear and longing. This is called Nibbana. And it's important that we not make Nibbana some kind of thing, right, that we're going to get, right, because that's, that's like, that's immediately is a clinging and grasping. If you've got it, it's not Nibbana, right? Because there's it and there's you and there's some kind of clinging, so that's not Nibbana. It's simply a profound and deep opening in any moment. And you've had them. 
you've had those moments. The, the reason that the Buddha looked for his own enlightenment was because he remembered when he was eight years old, he, he sat under a rose apple tree while there was a celebration going on. And he had one of those moments where he was just looking out and seeing all of the people celebrating. And he had that moment of freedom, that moment of peace. So it's not being at war with things, being hot, too hot or too cold or too loud or too soft, but just stopping the battle, stopping the internal war, just to be where we are. Suzuki Roshi says, when we can accept the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in Nibbana. And we could go on about Nibbana. We could probably just do one whole session on Nibbana. But then there is a fourth noble truth, and that this is, this is the important instruction for us, that there is a path that we can take. And that path is, a, is called the Noble Eightfold Path, in which the Buddha talked about three different limbs of a path that we can take. And of course, the path, there's a saying that the path, there is no path without walking. So we can talk about a path all we want, but it's not a path that's realized until it's taken by each and every one of us, singly and individually. And of course, that becomes a collective um, endeavor. But it's this path that has three aspects of wisdom, integrity, and meditation. So this meditation that we do, we broke into three different aspects wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. But, he, but what feeds into that meditative practice is a life of integrity. And of course, we took the precepts this morning together, which is part of that life of integrity, having an intention of not harming. And he, and he broke that into, into three. And he called it wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that he singled out speech from action. Because as you know, speech is one of the most difficult things. When we start, to, when we are sitting in meditation, we're great, right? It's wonderful. And then we open our eyes and then we have to relate to our fellow human beings. And we start talking, you know, and we lie and we cheat and we, you know, and we say, we exaggerate and we gossip and we, you know, sometimes not such nice gossip. So it's a way of, working with our, with our speech, which is so difficult to do. And of course, none of these aspects of the path are a snap. They're meant to be a lifelong uh, practice. So wise action of uh, not taking what is given, not harming, etc., that we did with the five precepts. And right livelihood, or wise livelihood, not Having not being engaged in livelihood that harms other beings. And then there's wisdom, which is uh, wise understanding and wise intention. Wise understanding of these four noble truths, as well as seeing the characteristics of life, that, that everything is impermanent, that there's no solid self that can be built, because everything is changing, everything is impermanent. And this truth of of suffering, of, of dukkha, and wise intention, wise aspiration, really setting our aspiration, our motivation 
for everything that we do. Because no matter what we do, it's our motivation that makes a difference in terms of its impact. So these four, these four noble truths are in a way our template for practice. They tell us why, why we meditate. We meditate because we, un we begin to understand, we get a glimpse of the suffering. We begin to understand about the clinging and grasping that causes the suffering. And we see from time to time the possibility that it may end. And we understand that without wisdom and without integrity and without a way of, of settling the mind and the body in mindfulness and concentration with balanced effort, that without that, it's, it's, all, it's near impossible to really realize the wisdom and to live that life of integrity because without mindfulness, sometimes we don't even know what we're doing, right? Because we're, we're doing one thing and we're somewhere else. So the, so the path is a kind of, um, it's a circular holographic thing. It's not a linear thing where we, we say we become wise and then we become people of integrity and then we meditate or, or any other way that we want to set it up but that all of these elements are co-arising together so that because we know we can't meditate if we've had a good day of killing, right? It's going to be hard to do. So without integrity, meditation becomes almost impossible. And without meditation and integrity, wisdom is hard to realize because we can't see clearly. So these are the Four Noble Truths. And of course, this is a really short and small teaching on, uh, on, on the basic teaching of the Buddha. And as we go along in these sun sittings on Sunday, we can start to fill them out. We can start to really dive deeply into each one of them. And I invite you, as you go through your lives, as you go through your daily lives, to begin to recognize, oh, this is Buddha. This is really a helpful thing. This is a really helpful thing. Just to be able to name it. When there's sickness or sorrow or depression or meanness directed to, to us or directed outward from us. When we start to, to really become mindful of when dukkha arises. Just that alone. So can you take the next, until the next time we get together. And just take this first noble truth. Can you recognize Dukkha in your life and see how that is, just to recognize it, to not get so caught up in it and make, uh, make something personal of it, but to really understand its, um, its universality. It, it's what we have in common with every other being who lives on this planet. So do that. Do that as your homework. Right? Really, notice Dukkha in your life. And I hope that uh, from just that recognition, maybe you'll begin to also recognize that small moment of release and being self-liberated, that small moment of freedom when the heart opens and we can actually touch it, touch Dukkha with wisdom and with compassion. So thank you for listening. We have just a few minutes for any comments or questions that you would like to make. Yes, please. 
a lovely talk, and I've only heard you a few uh, handful of times. And uh, every time, it's very good handling the scripture and make it very, very real. Uh, you know, uh, work uh, very, very integrated. Uh, I very much enjoy your speaking. So uh, I'm going to go by the four, four noble truths. Here we have a suffering. The cause of suffering is clinging. And the end of it is renunciation, giving up the clinging. And I, and I introduced this to my 12-year-old. And uh, he, he draws a good question. You know, in my life, of course, I have, uh, oh, a little bit of hunger. And I'm going to try to give away, you know. I, I, have the, I have the good fortune not to have a fatal, painful cancer, not to being, atta not being attacked by either soldiers or wild animals. And, uh, oh, but on these things of uh, giving up... Um, uh, let's say the next cup of coffee, feeling the suffering of that not having that next cup of coffee and, and releasing that anxiety of uh, that cup of coffee. So I'm ex explaining that, you know, uh, trying to explain that the uh, cause of, su of suffering is clinging to these little things and, and that the practice is letting go of these little things. And he makes what I consider to be a very wise uh, observation, which is that suffering is very different than being bleeding out from a bullet wound or uh, you know, being attacked by wild animals. And is it the, the case that that suffering, of the suffering experienced by someone who has a real pain of like uh, being attacked, is caused immediately by his clinging to the desire not to be um, in that situation? Or is it somehow more diffuse that in general, uh, the suffering of that person is caused by clinging worldwide. Because I was, you know, in other words, uh, uh, clinging, uh, suffering is caused by the clinging to the, to the thing that you uh, don't want to be separated from, etc. <laughs> but it seems at a certain point, if the so suffering I is very I, great... Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. Okay. So, so basically, it's, it's mistaking the object of our desire and the desire itself. That the first thing to really look at is not so much all of the things that we love, that we want, you know, like a cup of coffee, or the big house, or the car, or, or the job, or the this or the that. It's not so much that. But looking at how the desire, the, the attachment to the desire for that is what causes the suffering. So, yeah, we can want all of those things. That's, it's not a problem. We're not trying to get rid of desire. But what we want to look at is how much, how invested we are with our happiness in the attainment of those things. So is it okay with us if we get it or we don't get it? We can want it. It's not a problem. But how invested are we in, how, how much do we think our happiness is totally dependent on, on the satisfaction of those desires. That's clear. So, so there's a difference between satisfying our desires and contentment. Because if you sa satisfying your desires is endless, and that's what causes the suffering. But if we're content with what we have, yeah, and we say, oh, well, I'd like this to happen or that to happen, and it's okay if it doesn't. That's a very different thing than when it happens, I'm going to be happy. So, so if we're attacked by a tiger, right, because we put ourselves in, in harm's way of the tiger, and the tiger attacks us, can we be okay with that? Of course we do everything that's necessary to, to heal from it. 
or to survive. But can we be okay with it? Rather than thinking, I shouldn't have done it, why didn't they do it, somebody's to blame, I should sue somebody because the, that tiger should not have been in the road, and you know, blah, 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 blah. That's the suffering. So, so the Buddha gave a teaching of two arrows, that the first arrow was the tiger attack, attacking. The second arrow is all of the mentation that we do about how it shouldn't have happened and somebody somebody's responsible and I shouldn't have done it, you shouldn't have done it, and it doesn't work. So, so to, to really start to investigate, and as I said in the beginning, don't believe it. And, and that's a serious invitation. Rather, rather than believing it, to observe what causes me suffering. Where do I, how do I, if, when you're, so that when you're in the middle of it, you go, oh, this is dukkha. That's not the end of your investigation. The end of your, the, the, the continuation of your investigation is, why am I suffering? What, what is it that's causing the suffering? It's not the not getting the desire satisfied or the, dif or the difficult situation arriving, but actually the relationship to that. That's where that's where we investigate, and that's where we start to understand suffering at its cause. So I, I need to stop here. I'm sorry that it, I took a little bit longer this morning because of just trying to gauge uh, what, would, what would work in, in, in these mornings. Um, and I hope uh, that I'll see you again very soon. And if we could just do a, a dedication of merit. Um. And if you have further questions, I'm stopping a little bit early because I need to get something done. I'll be five minutes and then I'll come back in and if you, if you want to wait, I'm happy to, to chat with whoever has a question or wants to make a comment, okay? So, when we sit together like this and we um, reflect on the Dharma, we practice our meditation and our, all of the ways of being in alignment with the values that we reflect on, we create a field of merit or a field of goodness. And instead of holding that for ourselves, we take that field of, of merit and we share it with all beings everywhere who are our uh, companions in this life and all those who have gone before us. So we dedicate the merit of our practice and of our reflection and the goodness of that merit of that practice and reflection to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing for the happiness, the safety, the health, and the awakening of everyone with whom we share this planet. May all beings be free. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming, and may you have a beautiful and blessed day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.